Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. I'm Andrew Glester and in this episode we're going to be looking at the search for the missing plastic in the oceans. Now if you're anything like me, you wouldn't know until you'd picked up the May issue of the Physics World magazine that there was such a thing as the missing plastic in the oceans. But Marek Stevens in that article writes that the Great Pacific Garbage Patch the accumulation of floating debris encircled by the North Pacific Gaia, a system of ocean currents circulating between North America and Asia, is estimated to contain a staggering 80,000 tonnes of plastic. There are similar places holding smaller collections in the South Pacific, the Indian Ocean and the North and South Atlantic as well. In total, the mass of known plastic floating on or near the surface of our oceans exceeds 250,000 tonnes. The odd thing is that that simply isn't enough. Since we started releasing plastic into the sea in the 1950s, the amount emitted annually has risen to something like 10 million tonnes. 10 million tonnes per year since the 1950s and yet only 250,000 tonnes that we can find in the oceans. So where has it all gone? But before we start our exploration into that missing plastic, I'd like to thank Teledyne Hastings Instruments for supporting this episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. For over 75 years, Teledyne Hastings has provided reliable vacuum gauging, precision mass flow controllers and meters. The company was trusted to help bring home moon rocks from the Apollo era. Let them help you today with your toughest vacuum and flow applications. Find out more at teledyne.hi.com. But I wanted to begin with a conversation that I had at the Blue Dot Festival in 2018 with Dr Lucy Quinn, who works for the British Antarctic Survey. You may remember... Dr Lucy Quinn, as the person who appeared on our screens in the BBC's landmark natural history series, Blue Planet 2. It was Lucy who we saw sitting amongst the plastic in the Albatross colony, the scenes that changed the way that politicians saw the plastic problem. I began by asking Dr Lucy Quinn how she had got involved in the Blue Planet 2 series. I was working with British Antarctic Survey as seabird scientist down on Bird Island, which is one of the scientific research stations that British Antarctic Survey have. And it's a really small island. It's only 4.8 kilometres long by 800 metres wide, so it's tiny. I, I was working there whenever the BBC Blue Planet team were wanting to come down and film a story about how older albatrosses Um, put lots of energy into their kind of final breeding attempt and it's something called terminal investment. So I was helping out with logistics of that and just happened to be working on the island at the time. Effectively whenever they came on it was my job to make sure that they weren't getting too close to the birds and that I was taking them to places where they'd be able to feasibly film the, the wandering albatross that they were wanting to film. And it was really through through them being there that we then obviously wanted to show this story about albatrosses and the marine litter problem so then I got involved with that story because I was on the island at the time because people will have seen you on Blue Planet 2 on screen talking about (laughs) this this plastic problem incredible um, heartbreaking footage which has mobilised 
a nation and beyond. Yeah, it's been absolutely incredible. I mean, the thing with science quite a lot is, you know, it takes years. And I mean, people have been, you know, scientists have been working for decades um, knowing that there's marine litter problems. And in fact, at British Antarctic Survey, they've been looking at the plastic there for, yeah, over 20 years. Um, to, to have, you know, the public react in such an incredible way to the story, I think it was due to, you know, the amazing images that the the BBC Blue Planet was were able to present to the public, um, combined with the fact that that final episode had, you know, scientists basically stating the case and and you know we're all collaboratively saying you know something needs to change because it's it's only us that can do something about this and it's been amazing so the public support has been fantastic and I think it has ultimately you know forced our sort of government's hand at right yeah we can't ignore this anymore um something needs done and it needs doing now otherwise by 2050 we'll have more plastic in the sea than fish and effectively that's not a legacy you want to leave um and I think I think the main thing is about ensuring that we stop putting plastic in the ocean. So that's that, you know, we need to cut off that. There's already lots in there and that's going to disintegrate and some of it may come out, but really we need to stop at the source. Yeah. So you're a, a ornithologist? What is yeah, a marine ornithologist, a yeah. Marine ornithologist. So, Plastic is, is it something that the BBC saw because they were going to specific places or is it everywhere? Well, it's everywhere. Yeah, it's absolutely everywhere. So so obviously they were um, filming on many different parts of the ocean from, from the deep ocean um, up to the surfaces and coastlines and it, it has infiltrated everywhere. So, um, yeah, from the high Arctic down to Antarctica and, you know, fr- from the smallest animal in the sea to, to the large whales, they're all being influ- you know, coming into contact with with our own detritus and marine litter um, I think it would just happen to be highlighted very well in the Blue Planet show but it's something that you know, if you've worked in marine ecology it's been known about um, Yeah. so a seabird colony you're constantly seeing how seabirds have brought back um, plastic to, to your, you know, around their nests. Um, I work on a project that looks at northern fulmers, which is um, a really lovely seabird that we have in the UK. And effectively, we get any fulmers that have been, say, washed up on the beach or caught accidentally um, by fishermen. We we collect up all those samples and we dissect the fulmer. And over 95% of those birds have plastic in their stomachs, and that's in our own North Sea. And effectively, because birds forage so widely and go to so many different parts of the ocean, they're, they're fantastic indicator species. So that's, you know, species that we can look at as showing us a, an indication of the, the marine health and, and where they've been to. And um, So, yes, we, we see it in our, in our everyday working. Um, now, the question, obviously, as scientists, is how much of an influence is the plastic having on their population? And that's a big question, you know, we... We already know two of the, the the main reasons why seabird populations are in decline, why certain populations are. For example, the albatrosses and some of our own seabirds, like fulmers, um, is because they're being ca- caught accidentally in longline fishing. So, um, yeah, 
tracking work has shown that there's overlap in the tuna fisheries, for example, in in um, southern oceans and. Um, so that's one major, major reason why lots of seabirds are, are dying because they're being caught on fishing lines. Um, and the second one, of course, is climate change affecting their food supply. And, you know, areas that they might have previously known, oh, this is a great foraging spot, I'm going to go there. They go there and the fish is either no longer there, it's been fished out, or, you know, that fish hasn't bloomed in time for them. As ever, the real reason why we care about the plastic is the impact on the wildlife in the oceans. Fast forward to this May's edition of the Physics World magazine, and there is a story by Marek Stevens entitled The Search for the Missing Plastic. And last year, James Dacey of Physics World met one of the key researchers in that search for the missing plastic at the European Geosciences Union's annual meeting. Talking to James Dacey, his Utrecht University's physical oceanographer, Eric van Sebel. I study how ocean currents move stuff around. So how do the ocean currents move plastic, plankton, fish from one side of the ocean to the other? And um, in, in particularly recently, what I'm studying is where all the plastic in our ocean mm. is actually going to. So back in 2015, I led a, um, a large study where we, where we tried to make an estimate of how much plastic we now know is floating at the surface of the ocean. And uh, after a lot of combination of data and models and, and, and some statistics, we came up to the grand conclusion that something like 250,000 metric tons of plastic is floating on the surface of the ocean right now. Mm-hmm. And that's a shocking number, 250,000 metric tons. It is shocking because it is very small. It is much, much smaller than the amount of plastic that we know is going into the ocean every single year which we estimate is at least 5 million metric tons. So year after year, we have 20 times more plastic entering the ocean than is on the surface of the ocean right now. So I would say that we really only know of 1% of all the plastic or so that where it is now. 99% of it is, is missing. We have, we have dark plastic. I mean, do you have any kind of ideas yourself as to where that might be? Or is there any like glimpse of evidence to suggest where it might well, be? Well, the thing is that we every time we go and look for it, so it is not like dark matter because every time we go and look for the plastic, we actually find it. It's almost the opposite, where it is almost too easy to find plastic. Um, people who go out and sample the seafloor, um, either the sediment there or, or, or with a, or, um, with a sub- submersible or so, they mostly find plastic. Anyone who's ever gone to the beach and looked carefully will find plastic there. So there's plastic everywhere. The problem is that we don't know how much there is. Mm. Um, on the beaches, we don't have good accounts of where all the plastics is on a global scale. On the ocean floor, we certainly don't have those accounts of where the, all the plastic is on a global scale. So we have these kind of pinpricks mm. where everywhere where we look, we know that there's plastic, but we don't have the complete overview. We don't have the maps. So in terms of the the known plastic in the ocean, have you mapped the distribution of that within the global oceans? And, yeah, can, can you just describe that distribution? So plastic, or at least the floating plastic in the ocean, um, gets moved around by the ocean currents. And the thing is that the ocean currents, that they are three-dimensional. Ocean water sinks in some location and it comes back to the surface in other locations. Now, the general distribution of that, the general pattern, is that the water comes up from the deep ocean towards the surface near Antarctica, 
along the equator and in the high uh, Arctic. Mm. And then from there, it slowly flows towards what we call the, the mid-latitudes, which is around 30 degrees north and 30 degrees south, so say the latitude of Miami or so. And that is where the water starts to sink again. So there's this kind of like three-dimensional vortex of water moving up and down. But the plastic doesn't go down with the water. So the plastic stays at the surface. And as the water sinks, the plastic stays behind. And then the currents move more and more plastic in. And that is why you get accumulation, what's called garbage patches. Mm. There are five of them. Each of the, of the subtropical gyres has one. So every time around 30 degrees north and 30 degrees south, all this plastic accumulates. And at the same time, there's relatively little plastic in the Southern Ocean. There's relatively little plastic in the equator. There's relatively little plastic in the Arctic. I think I'm, I'm guilty as well of just thinking of it as, you know, a load of plastic bags floating on the surface. But, yeah. but actually, it's nothing like that. So many people think of the garbage patch as kind of like this island of plastic, as kind of a dump where all the plastic comes together and, and where you, you, you could even stand on or something. Mm-hmm. But it's nothing like that at all. Um, if you go out there, you'd actually be hard-pressed to, f- to, to say whether you're in a garbage patch or not. If you would take me on a ship, blindfold me, and after three weeks get me out on deck and ask my, um, are you now in a garbage patch or not, I would not be able to say it. Yeah. Because the concentration of plastic in the garbage patch is very, very, very low. We're talking one piece of plastic per square meter, roughly, and the pieces of plastic are the order of a few millimeters. So we are talking very, very few pieces of plastic per square meter. I would argue that, that most living rooms have more plastic, on uh, have higher plastic concentrations than the ocean. It isn't a plastic soup. It is really much more a plastic bouillon. <laughs> it's a bit like, I suppose, in the sci-fi films when... You know, the spacecraft in Star Wars is flying through asteroids and they're really close, but in reality, they're actually very distributed. Exactly, exactly. Or the, or the, or the, um, the model of an atom or so, right? Exactly, I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I, um, everything is, is, is void space. In the ocean, the plastic mm. soup is just a lot of water mm. with one tiny plastic particle mm. every square meter. I think it's important to remember that even though the concentration isn't quite what you might expect it to be or you'd imagined it to be, that doesn't lessen the impact of the plastic on the environment. One particularly interesting patch of plastic is, as we've been talking about, around Antarctica, which is not necessarily something you would expect. Yeah, exactly. So that was a long-standing conundrum where 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 people, including at the British Antarctic Survey, they they found that there is actually quite a lot of plastic around Antarctica, and indeed the currents weren't supposed to bring it there because the currents are going away from Antarctica. Mm-hmm. So the idea was that maybe it's the scientists or the or the tourists that are such litter bugs that there's a lot of plastic around there, mm-hmm. and then on 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 quite a tangential accidental um, discovery was made, namely that um, a biologist walked along a beach uh, in Antarctica and he found a piece of kelp laying around on that beach. And he was really surprised because kelp, which is an algae, Mm -hmm. it doesn't actually grow on Antarctica. So it must have drifted there from where it does grow. Now, the cool thing about kelp, and much better than, say, plastic, is that you can identify kelp in, and, and you can do genetic analysis of where that kelp actually came from, where its home colony was. Mm. So we did that and we found that the kelp actually came from either South Georgia or the Kerguelen, which is a small island in the, in the Indian Ocean. 
So it must have drifted something like 20,000 kilometers all around the Southern Ocean. And most importantly, it must have drifted southward mm -hmm. against the normal ocean flow. So when we put that into our ocean models, we weren't able to reproduce that. We weren't able to, to reproduce particles moving from relatively subtropical latitudes southward if we only take into account the ocean currents. It wasn't until we also took into account a thing called Stokes drift. And Stokes drift is the, is, 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 is the effect of, of waves. It's essentially the surfing on waves of floating, um, of floating material that, um, that, that oceanographers have known about for decades, but that, that was never really seriously considered. That was always something that was small. It wasn't important. It was, yeah, maybe on coastal applications this was relevant, but in the open ocean, nobody really thought about Stokes drift. Until we realized that, yes, it is important. And it is important because without the Stokes drift, mm. plastic actually or, or kelp can't end up uh, near Antarctica. You made a really important point as well around the fact that it's all very well knowing where the plastics are. But the key thing is to think about the impact of that on wildlife. Um, so you've identified certain regions that are particularly, um, you know, the animals there are at particular risk and whereabouts are they? I think it's important to realize that it's, it's not just about the plastic. Um, the plastic in the ocean is just plastic in the ocean. We care about the plastic in the ocean because it interacts with marine life. So if that is what we care about, if it can harm marine life, then we should first and foremost think about where is the marine life. And essentially do the convolution between the two. So create a map of where the plastic is, create a map of where the marine life is, mm -hmm. and then find out where they actually interact. Now, we did that for seabirds uh, a few years ago. And much to my surprise, we found that the interaction then doesn't happen in the garbage patches. The garbage patches that are so famous where most of the floating plastic is are actually pretty devoid of life. Mm because there's hardly any nutrients there, because it is kind of like at the end of the whole cycle of, of the water flow, all the nutrients are used, almost nothing lives there. Mm -hmm. Instead, where most of the interaction between the seabirds and the plastic is, is in the Southern Ocean. It's around New Zealand, it's around the Kerguelen. Those are the hotspots where there's still quite a bit of plastic and there's just lots and lots of seabirds. So that's why the interaction is so strong there. And all the, the ecologists in that region, are they, are they noticing an impact of the plastic on the, the bird populations? Yeah, so, so, so plastic really impacts uh, marine birds. Um, we found that 80% of all seabird species at the moment are already ingesting plastic mm. um, on, 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 a on a regular scale. We found that on current trends by 2050, 99% of all individual seabirds would actually have plastic in their stomach. We found that currently that the average albatross carries around 10% of its body weight in plastic. Mm. That's quite shocking. Um, now, th that is still the one part of the harm question. And that's also important to realize, right? That harm is exposure times effect. And now we know the exposure. We know where they actually get exposed to the plastic. But we don't really know what the plastic does mm. to the animals and how it actually affects that. And that is still a huge open question that uh, a lot more research needs to be done. Oh, is, is, is it partly because you need such a long time period to see the effect of it, you know, 
going through the generations and being magnified and going through the food chain? Is, is it just that to actually study that is very, very difficult or is it just that we haven't got around to doing it yet? So research goes very slowly, <laughs> always. Um, and it takes time from grant proposal writing to grant proposal acceptance yeah. to yeah. student hiring to actually a paper, right? Yeah. So that's a long term. But I think it's more fundamentally that um, we just... The field is moving so quickly and there's so there's new evidence, there's new science so quickly that we, we can't keep up. There's too many questions to yeah. ask and we don't really even know which are the most important ones at the moment. So we're really struggling to figure out what what is happening with all this plastic in the ocean, all this plastic in the environment, and how we need to actually be worried about it or not. But yeah, in the end, I am a, I'm a physical oceanographer. And in the end, really what I care about is the ocean. And really what I care about is try understanding how the ocean works. And plastic for me is a tool to learn more about the ocean as much as it is a, a cause by itself. Well, I don't know about you, but the burning question I have is just where is that missing plastic? So I got in touch with Alethea Mountford, who's doing a PhD at the University of Newcastle, looking at the distribution of plastics throughout the ocean. My PhD is focusing on looking at the distribution and dispersion of plastics in the global ocean, mainly modelling based. Um, I run a three-dimensional numerical model to look at the distribution of positively buoyant, neutrally buoyant and negatively buoyant plastics. The positively buoyant plastics, they're the ones that are going to float, so a really common one. If you've got a plastic bottle that's got the lid on, it's full of air, it's going to bob along on the sea surface quite happily hanging out there. But then the different plastics have got inherently different buoyancies. So it impacts its density. So if you've got a neutrally buoyant plastic, it's got the same density as seawater. So if you were to put it in, in seawater, it will just sort of hang there. And these plastics are much more sort of at the mercy of the ocean itself and the ocean currents. So they'll just go with the flow wherever the ocean takes them. And then negatively buoyant plastics are ones that are going to sink. So if you've got something like a, I don't know, a car tyre. These can be moved around by currents on the seafloor and essentially they generally end up in really deep ocean spaces, so on abyssal plains, in trenches. For the past three years I've been going down to the Southern Ocean um, to Drake Passage, which is just between the tip of South America and the Antarctic Peninsula, and I've been doing some sampling there. So I've been collecting water samples from the sea surface down to the seafloor and at very various depths throughout there, um, filtering it down, collecting the filter papers, and then looking for microplastics there. When you're looking for microplastics in the ocean, that sounds quite difficult to me. Can you talk me through how you look for microplastics in the ocean? I collect about five litres of water per depth that I'm sampling, and then I filter that down, and then that all gets concentrated. Everything that's in the water gets concentrated onto a little filter paper that's about yay big. Alethea made a gesture of something a little smaller than a tennis ball. And then I visually examine all of those under a microscope to try and identify microplastics. And then any microplastics, or suspected microplastics I identify, I analyse them using Fourier transform infrared spectroscope, which essentially tells you what the thing you're looking at is made of and you can see whether or not it is plastic or not. But what else might it be? It could be a natural fibre, so it could be cotton or cellulose or something like that, 
or it could just be a little bit of seaweed, a little bit of shell, some organism, a variety of things. You get quite proficient at looking under a microscope and deciding what could or couldn't be microplastics. We've just developed a model where we can look at the interaction between microplastics and sea ice, um, which is quite interesting. I'm in the process of developing a model where we can look at the interaction between microplastics and um, organisms in the ocean, so we can look at the impact of biofouling on the density of plastics. So biofouling, basically, as soon as something goes into the ocean, you get all little... It starts off with just a little biofilm, so just bacteria, viruses, various things that secrete, basically just goop, which like coats the surface of um, whatever's in the ocean. And then from there, you can get larger things like algae, um, and then barnacles are a really common one for biofouling. So it's essentially just stuff growing on the surface of the plastics. So if you've got a plastic that's floating, and then you have stuff growing on it, it'll eventually cause it to sink because it'll make it heavier, it'll make it less uh, less buoyant. So it can make plastics that would have like originally be floating on the surface, like plastic bottles or plastic bags, whatever you have at the surface, they'll eventually sink down. And then these organisms can then die off, um, making it float again. So you can just have this sort of yo-yo effect of the plastics going up and down with sort of things growing on them and then dying again. I was surprised there was plastic missing. So this was a new idea to me. I, sp I suppose it wasn't that surprising to you. Sort of. It's when you first start thinking about plastics in the ocean, especially, and you hear about all the like garbage patches and stuff and this uh, like island the size of France or whatever it is, you get into it and then you realise that maybe it's not all as it sounds. Um, so the garbage patches aren't massive islands of trash. It's just sort of a soupy mixture of generally really tiny bits of plastic. And then when you start thinking a little bit more, you think, well, all of the plastic that's gone into the ocean can't be just in these few locations. And then you've got to think about where, where else it could go. So initially, um, a lot of research focused on these floating plastics and the plastics that are just at the sea surface. But then when you dig a little deeper, you've got to think about all the ones that are going to sink down. Um, you've got organisms that are eating the plastic, plastic that's going to end up sinking to the seafloor and then getting stuck in the sediments, that's getting washed back up onto beaches. So there are so many different places that the plastics can be, not just at the sea surface. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about the missing plastics. So the plastics that are floating on the sea surface, that's only less than 1% of all the plastic that's probably gone into the ocean since sort of commercial plastic production began. So what happens when it's been digested? Is that the plastic gone? Is that the end of the problem apart from... No, not necessarily. So like with bigger animals, once they eat it, it can quite easily just get stuck in their stomach. And then that's why you get all these whales that are beaching with tons of plastic in their stomach. It gets in there and then they feel like they're full so they don't want to feed or they can't fe physically feed which causes them to die but then if you've got some if you've got smaller bits of plastics they can obviously come out the other end and then that can have an impact on where it's going to eventually end up as well so if it's stuck in a fecal pellet there's quite a high possibility that it'll sink down to the sea floor because that's what naturally happens with with fecal pellets and then if it's a plastic that would normally have been floating around it might be transported to the seafloor instead all this information feeds into the modeling that you're doing right yeah mm -hmm. so where is the plastic 
Um, well, it's a difficult question to answer. <laughs> um, obviously, you're going to have all the stuff that's at the surface, which we can relatively well account for. But then if you've got plastic that's sinking down, it's thought that the deepest areas of the ocean are going to be its eventual resting place. So plastic's been found in the Mariana Trench, which is the deepest place on Earth. It's been found in the organisms that live in the Mariana Trench. It's been found in deep ocean sediments. So once it gets onto the seafloor, it's quite likely that it'll stay there. And then it's just going to get buried or sort of transported down through the sediment by stuff that lives there. There's going to be plastic in the water column. So the neutrally buoyant plastics that I was talking about that have got the same density as seawater, because they're they're passive and they can just be moved around by the sea, they can be drawn down right the way through the water column. So you're going to have plastic right from the sea surface down to the sea floor in a variety of locations. So it's essentially everywhere, really. Mm. And that's the problem. And I, when you're doing your modelling of it, it's all done on numerical modelling computers. What do you put into it and what differences do you see from different scenarios? So we put in just a set concentration of plastics. We run our simulations for about 50 years. And what we do is we start off with no plastic going in and then we ramp up the input of the plastic every year to the last year. So we put in a set amount of each of the different types of plastic and then run it over this 50 year period. And then the model moves it around with the ocean currents and then we can look and see where it'll end up over time and how it gets there. And does it worry you? It is quite worrying, yeah. The more you look into it, the more worrying it becomes because it, it seems like a bit of a... It's a very pessimistic view, but I think the likelihood of us being able to clean it all up is quite low. Yeah, I mean, my, cleaning it up, is that a realistic thing that we can think about? I think it's somewhat realistic, and I think we shouldn't rule it out because if we don't clear it up, then it's all going to stay there. But I think there needs to be a lot more focus on stopping the flow rather than cleaning up what's already there. Because if we're still putting in all this plastic, then it's the same as bailing out a boat with a hole in it with a bucket. You're still going to end up not in a great position. And as well, beach cleans, I think, are really important because a lot of plastic does end up getting beached, um, ending up back on the coastlines. And if you can stop it going back into the ocean, then that's really important as well. You can find so much rubbish on the beaches and if you can pick it up while it's there, then you're removing quite quite a significant amount. Yeah. What happens to it then, though? Where does it go then if it's not going What, to... with the beach cleaning? Yeah. Uh, it depends what people do with it. If you're just picking it up, then you'll put it in the bin. It may end up going into landfill. There's, there is a possibility that it'll blow out of the bin or whatever and end up back there, but it still tr- still helps doesn't it yeah it does oh it definitely does i'm just kind of wondering how it all ends up in the sea in the first place because if you just throw it away mm-hmm. it goes into landfill probably if you mm-hmm. recycle it or you know if it's recyclable then it goes to recycling mm-hmm. so wh- how is it all ending up in the sea um obviously you've got direct littering so people just chucking their rubbish on the ground if you've got a landfill that's close by to like a river anything like that it can just get discharged that way or just people living near rivers living near coastlines things fly around as much as they shouldn't do some ships still throw their waste over the side so it can get in that way there are so many different ways of it getting in it's quite difficult to control it really 
Um, and then as well in developing countries who don't really have the infrastructure for getting rid of their waste like we do, it's what else are they going to do with it rather than just have massive mounds of rubbish that's eventually going to work its way into the ocean. Mm. Okay. What <laughs> have you got? Have you got any solutions? <laughs> I think we need to start start thinking about reducing the production of it. Thinking about what we actually need plastic for, because realistically, we can't. I don't think we can, in the foreseeable future, live in a completely plastic free world, because there are so many things that it's really, really essential for, particularly in the medical industry. Like you can't be reusing like hypodermic needles or gloves or stuff that you need you need to be sterile but for things like plastic bottles or packaging um, plastic bags we can quite easily reduce our usage and reduce the production and I think that's where we need to be putting the focus on as mostly really. The truth is the plastic isn't really missing it's just that we can't find it there is a huge problem with the plastics in the ocean. If you'd like to find out more about the problem and indeed some possible solutions to it, then I highly recommend that you go and read Marek Stevens's feature in the Physics World magazine or on physicsworld.com from the 7th of May 2020 on the website and in the May edition of the magazine. If the microplastics in the ocean now are from objects decades ago, then we can make a difference for our children and for the scientists of the future and the sea creatures of the future and indeed the planet by concentrating on what we do ourselves in our day-to-day lives. I hope that wherever you are in the world, you and your loved ones are doing okay with the current pandemic and I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. We'll be back next month where we'll be looking at something quite topical to do with medical physics. And thank you very much for listening. Physics World.